Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called What the Body Knows. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June 12, 2016. A few years ago, a professor of divinity at Harvard announced the discovery of an ancient Coptic papyrus fragment in which Jesus purportedly mentions his wife. The announcement led to widespread controversy and debate, not only among academics, but within the church. What intrigued me at the time was not the possible authenticity of the fragment, most scholars now agree it's a fake, but the vehemence with which many Christians responded to its existence. Of course Jesus wasn't married, was the answer I routinely got when I asked around. He couldn't have been married, he was divine. In other words, sure, Jesus was human, but, well, not that human. He was holy, antiseptic, immaculate. Heaven forbid that the Son of God might have been so embodied, so, shudder, sensual. In her book, An Altar in the World, Barbara Brown Taylor tells a related story about visiting a beautiful old church in Alabama. Having arrived for the service too early, she stood for a while in front of the altar, admiring a mural of Jesus emerging from his tomb. Though the painting was luminous, Taylor felt that something was off. Jesus looked too ethereal. After gazing at the mural for several seconds, she realized what was missing. Jesus had no body hair. Without thinking, she turned and shared her realization with the nearest parishioner, a polite, put-together woman with expensive clothes and a flawless manicure. He has the arms of a six-year-old. His chest is as smooth as a peach. The parishioner's smile froze, and she stared at Taylor in abject horror. I can't believe you're saying this to me, she said without moving her red lips. I just can't believe you're saying this to me. Christians, Taylor concludes, often find themselves in the peculiar position of being followers of the word made flesh, who neglect our own flesh, or worse, who treat our bodies with scorn and shame. Or again, here we sit, says Taylor, with our souls tucked away in this marvelous luggage, mostly insensible to the ways in which every spiritual practice begins with the body. This week's gospel story confronts our shame head-on. No matter how hard we try to theologize or intellectualize it away, the story is naked-making. It exposes, it confronts, it directs our gaze. It's a story about the body, what the body is, what the body knows. Feet, tears, perfume, hair, all four Gospels tell it. The scandalous story of a woman who dared to love Jesus in the flesh, to love his spirit and his body with her own. Each writer frames the story differently to suit his own thematic and theological concerns, but that hardly matters. The story at its core remains the most sensual, most shocking one in the New Testament. If it doesn't embarrass us, we're not paying attention. In Luke's version, the story is set early in Jesus' ministry, at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. No doubt curious about the young rabbi who's garnering both praise and outrage in the surrounding villages, Simon invites Jesus to a dinner party. After all, why not check out the would-be prophet from Nazareth? Perhaps you'll have some fascinating things to say about religion. Perhaps you'll impress the other dinner guests with a nifty miracle or two. Wouldn't that be a credit to Simon, the host? If nothing else, Jesus' presence will make for interesting chit-chatter on the table. So the invitation is extended and accepted. The guests arrive on the appointed evening, and as they recline around an impressively laden table... Simon settles in for a few hours of good food and lively conversation. Enter the woman with the alabaster jar. In Luke's account, the woman is unnamed and unwelcome, a woman in the city who was a sinner. 
How exactly she crashes the party, we don't know, but she manages to get in the door, approach the table, kneel quietly behind Jesus, and let down her hair. While God knows what transpires between the dinner guests, the woman bends over Jesus and begins to cry. She soaks Jesus' feet with her tears, caresses them dry with her hair, repeatedly kisses his soles, his toes, and his ankles, and finally breaks open her alabaster jar to anoint his salty skin with a costly perfume. As far as we know, Jesus doesn't say a word. Neither does the woman. But they communicate volumes. Can you imagine the scene? I wonder if the conversation around the table faltered as the woman began to cry. I wonder if the temperature in the room rose a few significant degrees and everyone at the table reached simultaneously for the water jug. I wonder where the men looked, or didn't dare to look, as the woman wrapped Jesus' feet in her lustrous hair. I wonder if Jesus, never one to make things easy, captured Simon's gaze and held it, extending the discomfort, forcing his host to imaginatively experience every searing kiss that grazed Jesus' skin. The temptation here is to deflect, to minimize. Perhaps it wasn't such a big deal in the first century. I'm sure people in that culture were more expressive with their feelings than we are today. Showing affection like that was normal back then. No. No, it wasn't. The Gospel writer takes pains to describe just how scandalous woman's behavior was in that time and in that place. Simon is nothing less than disgusted, not only with the woman, but with Jesus who tolerates her. Specifically, it's the woman's touch that makes Simon squirm with indignation. If this, woman, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Luke sets the woman's story in the theological context of sin and forgiveness. Those who are forgiven little, love little, but those who are forgiven much, love lavishly. Simon's love is thin in this story because he doesn't recognize his need for grace. The woman, in contrast, knows full well the extent of her own sin and the wide embrace of Jesus' forgiveness, so her love for him is boundless. Needless to say, this is an important lesson and Jesus teaches it beautifully in the parable of the creditor and the debtors he shares with Simon. But what interests me more about the story is how much it conveys without language. What happens between Jesus and the weeping woman happens skin to skin. Unlike the prodigal son who prepares an elaborate apology for his father, this woman rehearses no repentant speech, and Jesus in turn pronounces no lengthy absolution. The woman never says, I need you, or thank you so much, or I love you. Her contrition, her worship, her yearning, and her love are enacted wholly through her body and Jesus receives them into his own body with love, tenderness, and pleasure. The holy sacraments here are skin, salt, sweat, and tears. The instruments of worship are perfumed feet and ardent kisses. This is not a polite piety of the mind. This is physical extravagance, what, Mary, what writer Mary Gordon calls a Sabbath of the skin. And Simon misses it entirely. Unwilling to recognize what only the body can know, Simon misses a sacred transaction happening at his own table. Notice what Jesus asks him. Simon, do you see this woman? It's a lacerating question because no, Simon doesn't see her. He doesn't see her humanity, her generosity, her capacity for deep and embodied love. Neither, in fact, does he see Jesus' humanity, the dusty feet in need of cool water, the sun-baked skin in need of fragrant ointment, the ever-giving, ever-sacrificing man in need of reciprocity, affection, and loving touch. From the sounds of it, what Simon needs is for the woman to remain a sinner and Jesus to remain a prophet. Perhaps his own identity, a Pharisee, 
depends on every other identity at this table remaining fixed. But this is exactly what the woman unhinges when her body enters the room. With her hair, her tears, her touch, she returns every guest at the table to his own skin. With her more perfect, more radical, and more offensive hospitality, a hospitality attentive to mind, soul, and body, she confronts everyone in the room with their common humanity. Do you see this woman? The weeper, the washer, the anointer? She is a prophet, too. There is a cost to seeing, a cost to seeing Jesus' body, a cost to seeing my own. I write these words first and foremost to myself because I'm also the product of a culture that treats bodies with scorn and shame. Most of the time I see my body as something to shrink, starve, conquer, or tame. I see its flaws so much more clearly than I see its God-ordained dignity and beauty. Rarely, so rarely do I see it as a vehicle for worship, love, hospitality, or grace. But if I can't see my own body as God's temple, if I won't embrace it as pleasing and delightful to its creator, how will I possibly see or embrace yours? And yet we are people of the Incarnation. Can we learn to see our embodied lives, our sensory lives, as fully implicated in our lives with God? Can we move past contempt, squeamishness, and fear, and offer God our whole selves? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself, Jesus told his weary disciples after the resurrection. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. This is my body, Jesus says, given for you. Touch me and see. For books this week, we review Short Stories by Jesus by Amy Jill Levine. Amy Jill Levine. In Short Stories by Jesus, renowned biblical scholar Amy Jill Levine offers fresh and insightful readings of Jesus' most famous parables. Working against the centuries of Christian interpretation that have domesticated Jesus' stories, Levine argues that the power of parable lies in its capacity to challenge and disturb us. In her words, Parables bring to the surface unasked questions, and they reveal the answers we have always known but refuse to acknowledge. Religion has been defined as designed to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. We do well to think of the parables of Jesus as doing the afflicting. Therefore, if we hear a parable and think, I really like that, or worse, fail to take any challenge, we are not listening well enough. Levine's interpretations of popular parables like the Good Samaritan, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Mustard Seed draw on rabbinical texts, the works of Philo, modern historical scholarship, and wise spiritual analysis. Levine refuses to flatten parables into allegories, which require outside keys for interpretation. So, for example, where Christian preachers often read the parable of the lost sheep as a story about human sin and divine forgiveness, Levine correctly points out that a first-century audience would have heard something quite different in Jesus' depiction of a shepherd perceptive enough to notice absence in the midst of abundance. Levine also challenges the rampant anti-Judaism that runs through much of our contemporary teaching about the parables. For example, the teaching about the Good Samaritan parable that pits a loveless Jewish obsession with purity against a charitable Christian concern for neighbor and enemy. In fact, Levine argues, the more literate we are in the richness of Second Temple Jewish scripture and thought, the more we'll appreciate the complexity of the parables. A Jewish listener would not, for example, hear Jesus say, a man had two sons, without immediately hearing rich echoes of Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, Manasseh and Ephraim. 
Levine's educational and worthwhile book returns Jesus' parables to their original context of first-century economics, agriculture, morality, and social ethics, while simultaneously offering the contemporary reader ample opportunity for reflection and self-examination. It's a must-read for anyone interested in engaging Jesus' disturbing and open-ended short stories with fresh courage and honesty. For movies this week, we review Everybody Wants Some. The writer and director Richard Linklater has described his newest film as a sequel to his last movie, Boyhood, since it begins where that movie ended, with the boy beginning college and meeting his new roommates and a girl. That said, they are very different films. The movie premiered at the SXSW Festival in March of 2016 and has enjoyed strong reviews on both Tomato Meter and the Metacritic. The title of the movie, with its two exclamation points, comes from the 1980 Van Halen song of the same name, and many viewers have raved about the nostalgic soundtrack. At one level, this is a superficial bro movie, with body humor, lots of drinking, and girls as sex objects to conquer. It's set in 1980s Texas, when a college freshman named Jake joins the baseball team and lives off campus in their two party houses. The two-hour movie covers his first three days on campus before classes begin. Believe it or not, in the last part of the movie, there is actually a story about otherwise dumb jocks thinking about how to discover personal authenticity in all the role-playing identities that they are experimenting with. And finally, for poems this week, we have Address to the Lord, 7, by John Berryman. After a Stoic, a Peripatetic, a Pythagorean, just as Martyr studied the words of the Savior, finding them short, precise, terrible, and full of refreshment, I am tickled to learn this. Let one day desolate Sherry, fair, thin, tall, at twenty-nine today her life the Sahara Desert, who never has once enjoyed a significant relation, so find his lightning words. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June 12, 2016. I'm Debbie Thomas.